Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This is going to be a horrific battle, and a lot of people are going to die. But it is all on Hamas. It was Hamas's strategy to bring Israel into Gaza by using this massacre to have this apocalyptic battle. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Malcolm Nance, and we discuss the dreadful 7th of October attacks and Israel's subsequent war against Hamas, who are embedded in Gaza. I hope you find this episode interesting. Thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Malcolm, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Great to have you back on. So just for the benefit of listeners who may be unfamiliar with you and your work, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a veteran U.S. intelligence professional. I spent 20 years in the United States Navy mm-hmm. in cryptologic intelligence, senior enlisted, uh, Arabic uh, interpreter, Arabic linguist, cryptologic linguist. Uh, if you don't know what that is, go watch the movie Imitation Game and see what Alan Turing did, <laughs> as I like to say, yes. just German linguist, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I worked in uh, in uh, naval cryptology and spe- a specialized branch called special operations cryptology, mm. which is where we uh, carry out the kinds of activities that we do uh, for our subordinate agency. Uh, the agency we're subordinate to, which is the National Security Agency, and even your your agency, the General uh, Communications Headquarters, QCHQ. Children. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, you're joining me today to have a chat about this sort of Israel-Hamas war. So I suppose my first question really is about the 7th October attacks and kind of what your reaction to it was and what you've since learned about them. Yeah, well, you know, maybe that's something else that I left off my resume a few minutes ago. I've spent nearly 40 years working counterterrorism in the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, and North Africa, and South Asia. Um, but my first 10 years were spent uh, in activities, collection operations off of Lebanon, uh, Israel, and Palestine, what is, you know, the Gaza Strip. Uh, Although we didn't spend an enormous amount of time there, uh, we spent a lot of time dealing with the new fledgling terrorist groups and some of the old groups operating in refugee camps uh, around Sidon, Tyre, Beirut, Mm. uh, and the new groups like Hezbollah, uh, which manifested itself uh 1983 with the support of the iranian revolutionary guard corps so i spent an inordinate amount of time working that mission uh in that region i speak levant my my first dialect was levantine uh, arabic that's uh palestinian lebanese syrian dialect arabic uh and i spent an enormous amount of time trying to identify and isolate the locations of over 100 western hostages that had been taken by uh, terrorist groups 
mainly Hezbollah and other uh, Iranian-backed terrorist groups in Lebanon. And so that sort of set the groundwork for for my my future op- operations and activities around the world, particularly leading up to what we're seeing now, because I have seen this game before <laughs> many, many times. This yeah. is not the first time we've seen intelligence. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, one, intelligence failures, and two, uh, the kind of activities that we see the Hamas group carrying out. It's just now with the 10-7 attack, it is an order of magnitude bigger than virtually anything we've seen before, with the exception of the rise of the Islamic State group, right, ISIS, uh, and their mass, you know, massacring, marauding across northern Iraq and uh, northeastern Syria. So the difference here is that the Israeli uh, army, the vaunted Israeli defense forces, were caught off guard. Uh, Clearly, it was a lack of imagination. And more importantly, and this is where, you know, a lot of people say, wow, you know, you're you're a black guy in, in intelligence. Yes. One of the advantages that we have uh, in, in being uh, people of color in the intelligence community is it's not just that we understand that we have a different perspective on how collection is done, on how things are analyzed. It's just that we tend not to be as surprised when our opponents, who are also people of color, exercise ingenuity, uh, alacrity, and daring. Uh, And that's principally because we're trying to do the same thing, and we also are often underestimated by our peers. Uh, You know, where that that, that joke about the the average, uh, you know, the average uh, middle-class white guy being Peter principled and promoted up over very uh, well-regarded, very respected uh, men and women in the intelligence community who might be people of color is not a joke. Mm. But that does not deter our loyalty to the mission. It gives us clarity to the mission because we understand that two individuals of average intelligence, even slightly below average intelligence, can come up with some of the most ruthless, uh, some of the most inventive and asymmetric plans that can take down a multi-billion dollar intelligence collection apparatus. And that's what we saw on 10-7. The Israelis, God bless them, I lived in Israel, almost married an Israeli, full disclosure, um, just their own inherent arrogance about who they were dealing with. Even in the intelligence community, I know that there was some mid-level senior sergeant or, you know, uh, captain who flew in in Arabic. His collection teams were seeing all sorts of wild stuff. And it was when they got up to the major and the colonel and the general level, they were like, they're just Arabs. They're not going to be able to beat us. I have literally sat in command centers and heard that said, right, even as those people you know, inventive human beings were attacking us. So arrogance is one of the critical failings in the intelligence world. You cannot bring that to the battle space and think, you know, I mean, I I can't believe it. I'm talking to your podcast full of British people. Let's look at some examples of that. (laughs) You know, the, you know, the march to Kabul (laughs) in the first Afghan war in which Every British soldier, uh, resident, uh, and you know, family were slaughtered 
in the city of Kabul with one survivor, a wounded doctor, being allowed out, right? I, I can't recall the numbers off the top of my head. I'll have to go back and, and review that, but I'm sure it was several thousand people who were all killed in the markets of Kabul because our own inherent arrogance about what we think we are does not mesh into what our enemy is capable of doing and what we think he is capable of doing. So 10-7 on that respect was a horrible, horrible one airlock of arrogance, right, which allowed them to never even possibly conceive that due to Israel's overwhelming firepower that anyone would do anything against them, particularly Hamas, because they had Hamas infiltrated, listening to their communications, drones overhead all the time, a seemingly impenetrable fence between, you know, Gaza and uh, all of southern Israel, guard posts, and they definitely wouldn't dare do it on a Friday morning when everyone <laughs> was at Sabbath, which for me, that's precisely mm -hmm. when I would want to, you know, it's like when you're, when you're in ground warfare, you know, when I was in Ukraine, hey, 5 a.m., right? My guys were all up and ready because we used to, we for a while thought the Russians were very lazy. They wouldn't fight till 8 a.m. You know, the midnight artillery watches would shoot off a few rounds and then everybody could go to sleep and eat, you know, eat kebabs for the rest of the morning. No, it's they're the inventive guys, PMC Wagners, the Spetsnaz, the VDV, they would come at five with night vision. So if you understand the dynamic of your enemy and appreciate that even some of the dumbest soldiers can be quite inventive, that's when you need to be your most prepared, not your least prepared. And Hamas took the advantage they were given and created a very, very, very broad plan for what 10-7 actually was, which was an invasion of Israel. And that invasion apparently had uh, only two strategic factors. Factor number one, or objective number one, cross the border, kill every man, woman, child you encounter. Every one of them. Summary execution of everyone. And that's what they did. 1,400 Israelis yeah. were summarily executed one by one by one, right? So they understood this. This operation called Al-Aqsa Storm, right, or Al-Aqsa Flood, was planned for two years. I mean, when I first heard the operation, as I saw the, you know, the Hamas forces flowing, I said, this is a multi-year plan. No one can come up with this in a matter of hours. God, they had like PowerPoints and in, in, in operations manuals. They had an Israeli tactical identification guide that they had printed. That takes weeks and weeks and weeks. This was not something that was a flash in the pan. So that was number one. Number one, mission, come across that border, kill every man, woman, and child, right? Then that's when you realize it was a suicide mission. Because when you're shooting every man, woman, and child with all your available ammo, right? You're going to go through your battle load pretty fast. And so then the second phase of that, part A and part B, A was kill, part B was engage the Israeli army and die. It was a suicide mission. They never intended to come back to Gaza. And yeah. that's precisely what happened. The Israelis now say they have 1,500 bodies.
part two of this was this massacre was designed as a strategic plan to make the Israelis insane with anger, to draw the Israelis to be literally blinded with, with the feeling that they would need absolute and immediate vengeance, which means that if you're going to plan a mission this deeply, 10,000 rockets were prepped, 5,000 were fired in the first 24 hours, then you are going to be ready for what follows next, which means there's a phase of Hamas combat that we are waiting for right now, which is the land warfare Israeli invasion of Gaza phase that would bring them into the teeth of what we must assume, right, is a Hamas terrorist force, right, the Izzedin al-Qassam brigades, yep. that is larger than the suicide force, larger than the 1,500 men that went into Israel. They're the raiding force. So perhaps as many as five or 10,000 men completely underground, sheltered from Israeli forces, and allow Israel to blitz into Gaza, kill as many civilians as they possibly can through collateral damage, which of course will bring allies, resources, and materials to Hamas, and then the real battle for Gaza will begin. Yeah, yeah. Well, Malcolm, let's go into some details about who Hamas are, because there are some listeners who only know little bits and pieces, and there's also, at the same time, a lot of misinformation about Hamas as well. So can you talk about who Hamas are and sort of how they came to be? Yeah, you know, first off, <laughs> I, I, I always have to say, okay, let's go back to, uh, the, the you know, the Sykes-Picot Treaty and uh, the Balfour Declaration. You don't need to go back that far. Let's go to the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, right? Uh, Transjordan had been divided up uh, by Britain and other negotiating bodies to give Israel a homeland, which was carved out of the eastern, western shores of Transjordan. In that area is where Israel established a state. Several Arab states did not agree with that, attacked Israel, and the first Arab-Israeli war started. Israel won that war and settled into the lands that you see mainly that are not the Gaza Strip and uh, the West Bank of, uh, of the Jordan River. Fast forward to, there are multiple Arab-Israeli wars, right? 1956, Israel helps Britain and France try to seize the Suez Canal and the Suez Canal War. Um, then in 1967, uh, Israel is attacked uh, by other forces and carries out a, a, a series of combat actions that defeat Egypt, Jordan, and Syria in major land wars. Then the Arab forces learned. Egypt planned its own surprise attack on Israel in 1973. Now, while this is happening, in 1964, a new element in the game was manifested. And that was a young Palestinian who was a part of the Arab diaspora, the Palestinian diaspora that was living in Kuwait named Yasser Arafat. Yeah. Yasser Arafat wanted to create a terrorist group, right? What he called a resistance group that would have been equal to one of the Israeli groups that existed in 1948, the Irgun, right? Uh, he wanted to create a Palestinian version of this that would use terror to bring attention to the Palestinian plight. 
And he would do that successfully during the late 1960s, early 1970s, leading up to one of the more amazing operations by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, as opposed to the Palestinian Liberation Army. Uh, and if you want to learn how to differentiate those groups, go watch the movie Life of Brian. <laughs> but these groups would all fight for the Palestinian struggle using terrorism to bring attention to Palestinian cause. And this would lead us well into the 2000s, right? But then Yasser Arafat had decided that he had enough war. He, through a negotiated treaty at Camp David, the Palestinian Authority was formed, which would allow the Palestinian Liberation Organization to disarm, which would become the de facto leadership of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Yay, this sounds like a good thing, right? <laughs> It would also cause an Israeli prime minister his life for cutting this deal. Mm. So Hamas was not extant at this point until around 2005. There were, you have to understand some things. There are Palestinian nationalist terrorist groups, PLO, these old Marxist-Leninist groups like Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Palestine Liberation Organization, General Committee, you know, displaced Palestinian groups that were living in the refugee camps of, of Lebanon, the refugee camps around Damascus, reams of these groups. But they all had one thing in common. They were Palestinian secular nationalist groups. That means they were there for the, uh, to have, for the creation of Palestine, and they were not embodied as a fully only Islamic organization. They were all Muslims. Many of them were Christians as well. Uh, but they were Palestinians for Palestinian statehood. Then over time, the, how can I put it, the seed of Islamic nationalism, right? Uh, Palestinians who were nationalists but who clothed themselves in their religious beliefs being the vehicle to win that state that were starting to crop. And one of them was a very small group called Hamas that was operating out of Gaza. When the elections that were held between the Palestinian Authority uh, or for to determine whether the Palestinian Authority, which was now had its police forces in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, were held in 2005. Surprisingly, this small group, with a lot of backing by the government of Israel, that's some, a little thing that a lot of people don't want to recognize. Uh, actually, the Netanyahu government actually thought Hamas would be a good counterbalance to the Palestinian Authority, because he still held a grudge against Yasser Arafat, who would <laughs> yeah, die a few years later in mysterious circumstances. Hamas won the general election in Gaza in 2005, giving them the authority to do what they wanted. And the first thing they did was gained weapons and wiped out the Palestinian Authority police forces that were protecting Gaza and was known as the Battle of Gaza. Um, that brought them in full control of the Gaza Strip, whereas the West Bank, even today, is under the nominal uh, governorship or of um, governance of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas then, between 2005-2007, that's when they had the battles that got rid of the Palestinian Authority, and then from that point onward, they did not hold another election because they are now the, the de facto force in the Gaza Strip and they 
have brought forward their brand of resistance, which is Islamic resistance against Israel, which will win them a nationalist homeland, starting with resistance from the Gaza Strip. And what they've done is they've spent 17 years taking every bit of aid, uh, you know, all infrastructure, and creating an underground labyrinth of tunnels, uh, command posts, storage, and resources to fight the Israelis when the time came. Now, that time came at one point in 2014 when Israel did a brief uh, incursion into the Gaza Strip and, and Hamas fought them. But what happened over time is we saw that Hamas started creating new capability. Hamas was starting to follow the Iranian-backed militia model of create rockets, bombard Israel, just as Hezbollah was doing in Lebanon, uh, as other militias were doing around the Middle East, you know, the Houthi rebels and, uh, you know, the Iraqi militias. But they were all following the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps model of how to strike out at your enemies. And this is why people see so much influence from the IRGC onto Hamas. Now, very hard to actually put your fingers on that, but Hamas commanders have told us they sent cadres to Iran, to Lebanon, to Syria to get trained by the IRGC. And that's why we see this influence. Fast forward to the last few years, Hamas and Israel have traded blows, mainly with rocket attacks into Israel. Israel built the Iron Dome anti-missile system. It was accelerated because of Hamas and Hezbollah's multi-thousand stockpile of rockets that they had uh, built and had been uh, occasionally bombarding Israel with. And Hamas was also attempting to do traditional Palestinian terrorist attacks, maritime preparations, uh, breaching the borders, trying to get terrorist operatives in there as well. Now, let's move up to where we are now. The mission that they call Operation Al-Aqsa Storm, or Al-Aqsa Flood, depending on how you want to translate the Arabic, was a two-year plan to breach every part of the Israeli 50-kilometer line, flow through terrorist teams that were specialized to go in and fight in Israel, on Israeli ground, against the heart of the Israeli armed forces. But another aspect of it was they had built and warehoused 10,000 rockets, which were launched first with the intent to get the Israeli population into bomb shelters, where they would be easier to control and manage once these uh, terrorist teams came into the villages. And that proved to be actually very, very effective. Another component that we didn't realize that Hamas had, they even though they had put out propaganda videos, once again, lack of imagination in our own, you know, the, the, the arrogance of not just the Israeli intelligence, but the world intelligence, believing that their videos of those paragliders that they used, which flew into the Faith and Unity dance party out in the Negev desert, mm-hmm. turned out mm-hmm. to be highly effective way of transporting themselves. We had seen the use of paragliders before. I remember one specific attack where a paraglider flew across uh, the northern Israeli border, dropped hand grenades, was shot down and killed. Um, But to actually imagine them using, you know, 20, 30, two-man paragliders to fly not only over to this site, but we heard that there was an attempted penetration of the Demona nuclear power plant 
by at least a couple of paraglider, you know, these, uh, these terrorists on paragliders. Once again, lack of imagination on our part. Nobody had set air guard. Also, the use of drones, which had become ubiquitous in Ukraine, where I was. Jeez, I mean, we all have drones. Uh, dropping hand grenades on their checkpoints, on their surveillance systems, so that they could blind the Israelis to, to, to not seeing that they were bringing out bulldozers to just smash down the fence. Hamas used explosive breaching charges to get into military bases and actually kill the, uh, the personnel who were on watch there. So... Um, that is who Hamas is. Now, what you have now is an Islamic nationalist terrorist group that went from being a small scale, you know, raiding force, uh, going in and, you know, dropping bombs, uh, using rockets to essentially transform itself into an ISIS like exterminationist Islamic nationalist group, which means. They intend to kill every one of the people they encountered. And that's precisely what they did on 10-7. On the other hand, they also intend to make sure that the people of Gaza end up dead in this war as martyrs. As a matter of fact, I have a video that I'll, I'll play the audio cut for you later. And, you know, you can see the uh, the intent of the, of the Hamas commanders about what they expect to happen to the population. They expect the population to sacrifice themselves uh, when this apocalyptic battle hits Gaza City. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up, actually, because a lot of people seem to want to play down the fact that Hamas in their charter pretty much has the destruction of Israel and the death of Jews in their founding charter, and yet Israel's expected or has been expected to sort of make peace with them. I find that quite complex. Yeah, and, you know... Let's let's put this into perspective. Every Palestinian terrorist group, every anti-Israeli terrorist group has the elimination of Israel as a state and death to Jews in their charter. Now, in a, in a pretty neat trick in 2017, Hamas, as part of their negotiations, claimed that they have removed that from their national charter. And apparently they did. And this is one of the few places I can say uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is correct. He says, that is just smoke and mirrors. That is just to blind us. But then again, it worked so well that Netanyahu removed three arm, three mechanized infantry brigades off the Gaza border mm. and put them in the West Bank. That, you know, these three brigades could have possibly slaughtered the entirety of the Hamas raiding force on 10-7. So once again, watch what your enemy is doing. Pre, if you presume that they are not sincere in that, well, then don't move forces on a basis of that presumption. Indeed. One maybe slightly controversial question, um, and I don't mean mm. it to be controversial, but um, do you think Hamas have been sort of studying Ukraine's progress against Russia and felt that they might be able to achieve the same thing against Israeli forces? No. Um, I, I can say that definitively. I mean, I've been I've been writing furiously for the last four weeks yeah. uh, on on the strategy and tactics of Hamas and, and, and how they're doing battle. Um, what I can say right now is Hamas based its um, its raider model almost. Ex and this is where I, I get I get crazy. OK, because there are two very highly regarded um, academics, both of whom wrote well-regarded books about ISIS, right, the Islamic State organization, mm. whose first thought 
after this uh, operation was ISIS and Hamas are not the same. Well, of course they're not the same. They have different ideological basis. They have different motivations. Hamas wanted to create a Salafist caliphate based on Sunnah Muslims only and mass murder anyone who is not a Sunnah Muslim within the circle of, of, of the Islamic State organization. They are an absolutist exterminationist group. Hamas is a religious nationalist group, okay? But here's where they are or did decide to make a transition to Islamic State style operations. They are like Islamic State now because we have seen them demonstrate their combat capability and their combat capability was not about doing combat with the Israeli army until the last minute. It was about mm. exterminationist activities, right? Wiping out every living man, woman, and child in southern Israel with the effect of having the Israelis re-enter Gaza and have a battle that would bog down and destroy so many Israeli forces. They would gain more resources, manpower, equipment uh, over time, and then try these missions over and over again. Now, you don't have to believe me. The commander of, <laughs> of Hamas made this statement from Doha Kamtar just yesterday that Hamas will have a second 10-7, a third 10-7, and 10-7s will continue, you know, until technically they gain control of all of Israel. Now, that is another part where Hamas's initial success in this operation has led them to become arrogant as to what they're up against, all right? This is not the sort of claim you can make against a country with 90 atomic bombs, right? But the Israeli conventional forces, you know, and their mobilized forces, if they were to go to full national mobilization, this is a country that defeated four Arab armies simultaneously, right? And then after a surprise attack in the 1973 war, destroyed both the Egyptian army and the Syrian army and even trapped them in maneuver warfare. But this is against terrorists. And what Hamas has done is they have underestimated that killing this many Israelis would not bring about an ISIS-like end to the Hamas organization, which is a global campaign spearheaded by the Israeli forces, in which Hamas won't be able to move from where they have fixed themselves, the tunnel systems will not save them, and that it would take another 10 years for the children of the dead Hamas fighters uh, to create a Hamas 2.0. So, you know, if they wanted to have this battle, if they have something that they thought that could actually defeat the Israelis, I don't know. Maybe when the, they go into the tunnels, Hamas has phosgene gas. Maybe they've got, you know, some sort of nerve agent from the Syrians. Who knows? You know, the, the Iranians could have given it to them. Who knows what's in their crazy terrorist mind? The most important thing is they think that they have some capability to defeat Israel and that by mass murdering all those civilians in southern Israel and inviting, expecting, wanting the Israeli army to come into Gaza, right, that they would not have an Israeli force that would slaughter them to the man. And there's only one factor that's missing here, and I just finished a 2,000-word article on it. It's because Hamas needs the Israelis to really punish Gaza and kill a lot of civilians.
So if you're a, if you're a tactical commander and you go, whoa, whoa, we're going to go sliding into southern Israel. And we're going to kill every man, woman and child. You know, um, you know, they're going to you know, they're going to come back and they're going to kill all of us. Right. Mm. And Hamas's command has decided that the sacrifice of the Gazan people is will will slow the Israelis down will put them in a position to where Hamas can maneuver using their tunnel systems and broke, you know, their Stalingrad-like uh, urban environment against the Israelis to their advantage. And that the outrage of all of the dead Palestinian men, women, and, you know, the elderly and women and children will bring about an uprising throughout the Muslim world that no one has seen uh, in, oh, well, for decades, because the Palestinians... And thank you, ISIS and Al-Qaeda really got rid of Palestinian or support or financial support for many of these Palestinian causes. People were just sick of terrorists going around. I was I was just in Doha, Qatar and Dubai uh, the week, you know, days after this attack. And the Emiratis and the Qataris are like, oh, we're not going to fund these guys. Mm. You know, we don't want part of this. But when Hamas shows dead children... That is a completely different dynamic. And they even managed to so mobilize the outrage within the Muslim world uh, that it jumped over to the social justice world in the United States and England and, and Western Europe to the point where people are not only supporting free Palestine openly and publicly, they have now moved to where many people that you and I would never have imagined, all right, um, would be, you know, anti-Israeli, pro-Palestinian. Many of these people are anti-Jewish now, and they're attacking Jews all over the world as if Israel's invasion of Palestine was done by, you know, a synagogue in Brooklyn. Yeah. It was. So we're seeing a, a new dynamic that... I, I can personally say, I mean, I've, I've been carrying out operations since 1981 when I went to baby spy school, right? When I went to, to, to uh, my foreign language training school. Um, and prior to that, I had studied terrorism on my own since I was nine, you know? So I'm seeing a new movement that look, feels more like the anti-imperial, anti-American uh, you know, sentiment that we saw with supporters of Palestine um, in the Russian-backed uh, leftist era of the 1970s and 80s, right? Anybody wants to know what that era was like, there's a movie called The Little Drummer Girl. That, that was a book by John le Carré. And, you know, that's where you had cute, white, young, you know, teeny boppers, you know, moving bombs and explosives for Palestinian terrorists around Europe. That existed. That happened. Uh, these people became allies, and then from allies became their logistical support, their financial supporters, uh, gave them cover. Uh, I have a bad feeling that we may have just slipped back into that era. Yeah, I've been worrying a little bit about that. It does feel very similar to the 1970s in some respects. Ugh. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I groan because... You know, when we got into the ISIS and Al-Qaeda era of, uh, of what I called Islamic, you know, uh, rampant Islamic cultism, mm. which is what that was, right? Um, 
There had been five cults in Islam before that had tried this whole ISIS, Al-Qaeda, kill everyone who's not us thing. And the Muslim world tamped down on it pretty fast. But what we are seeing, you know, I used to say back in the ISIS days, wow, I really, I, I, I really remember what we called the good old bad days of terrorism, where terrorist groups were six-man teams. They would do something adventuresome and daring, like the Munich Olympics or you know, hijacking uh, aircraft and taking them out to Dawson's Field in Jordan and blowing them all up for television because mm. they understood the, the 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 drama of television. Now we are in a complete, I'm afraid to say that uh, the Hamas attack has reset the model. They took Al-Qaeda's tactics of everyone must die and our mission is to die along with everyone and then has now brought that to these nationalist, um, you know, these nationalist movements. Mm-hmm. What I haven't seen yet, and, and this is interesting, we all need to pay very close attention to this. I have not seen Hamas adapt the individual suicide bomber ethos of ISIS. That is where every man wears a suicide bomb belt. Every man, woman, and child has a suicide bomb belt. Uh, these guys want to fight. They intend to survive in some way, shape, or form, or they want to fight. They want to be the, you know, the, the you know, the battle, right? The hero, the guy who who goes toe to toe with the Israeli forces, gun to gun, and dies. You know, is martyred, um, is martyred without blowing himself up. This is a very, very different, um, uh, a very, very different form of warfare. If Hamas's 1,500-man assault force in uh, Israel had all had suicide bomb belts and had done a one-to-one, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, a one-to-one attack on Israeli forces using themselves as human-guided weapon systems, the result could have slowed the Israelis down dramatically. I'm not seeing it. And I'm wondering it's whether is it all just hidden underground? And waiting for the Israelis to come out before we start seeing those pictures of, you know, kids who were put into suicide bomb belts or, Mm. you know, little old ladies or donkeys. I've seen that. Uh, And then Hamas fighters coming out with bomb belts themselves. Yeah. Yeah. God, I hope that doesn't happen. I am not a happy person to interview here. Listen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I always enjoy having you on, Malcolm. You always sort of uh, ground us a bit, which I think we need at the moment, this this conversation. It's um, it's good to have your perspective. Now, um, I wanted to have a quick look at sort of the geopolitical picture. You've sort of touched upon the perspective on the streets of the Middle East, but I wouldn't mind just sort of going back into that. What is the sort of view at the moment on the streets of the Middle East about the uh, 7th of October attacks? Well, okay. Let's all cleanse our minds for a moment <laughs> and understand there are two Middle East you need to be concerned with. Middle East, North Africa, South Asians, right? This is the, or we could collectively call this the Muslim world, but let's let's stick to that region and the, ne- the nearer parts of that region. A lot of the older people have been seeing this forever. I interviewed um, an Arab sheikh in, in Dubai who's part of the royal family. And he said, this is a disaster. It's economically a disaster. It's a disaster for the politics of us trying to do rapprochement with Israel. But more importantly, it's just, and this is what he said, quote unquote, I can't stand to watch the television because every time I do, it's just dead kids on both sides. 
And he intimated pretty strongly that in their country, there will be no allowing people to send money to Hamas for this. Mm. Now, to me, that was a dramatic change mm. because for a very long time, and, I, and that dramatic change comes from ISIS, because for a very long time, ISIS was receiving money when they were Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula and before their great transformation. They were receiving a lot of money from Saudi Arabia, billionaires in Doha, Qatar, and um, Saudis and, and, and you know who, who may be living in the Emirates, right? Uh, but mainly Saudi Wahhabis, people who were very, very, very devout Muslims, who understood this, you know, who who sort of respected this apocalyptic mindset that the ISIS fighters have for to be the most pure of the pure Muslim fighters. Uh, that did not work out well for a good piece of the world. And so there is a component of the moneyed class that Hamas is probably thinking about relying on that will not allow that to happen. The Saudis won't allow money transfers to happen to people there uh, other than small amounts that can be traced to individuals that their counterintelligence can deal with. Because in many of these countries, especially uh, the Qatar, the Emirates, uh, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, they are mortally mortally terrified yeah. of the of the muslim brotherhoods and groups like hamas right who had their ideological basis uh in the muslim brotherhood as opposed to the isis salafis um uh ideology which which they don't have an alignment with so they're very terrified their entire counterintelligence forces of those nations is is designed to track out people who support uh, you know, support that Muslim Brotherhood ideology, which is Islamist in its own, right? Mm. It's also a, a, a very diehard Islamist, uh, but an Islamist socialist nationalist organization uh, that, you know, is mainly oriented to Egypt, but has infiltrated its way around the Middle East through school teachers from Palestine and Egypt. And these Gulf states are just mortified that this is going to come into their countries in a big way. The way Al-Qaeda in Iraq infiltrated uh, Saudi Arabia and their quiet, you know, internal civil war between the Saudi government and Al-Qaeda. Uh, they don't want this coming over to their to their nation. Um, then there's the, the actual Muslim Arab street. These are people who are at the lower income levels, the lower middle class and lower classes that get very, very upset and outraged when they see the videos of the Israelis in particular bombing children. They didn't get outraged that way when Bashar al-Assad was mass murdering 500,000 of his own citizens. They didn't get outraged that yeah, way yeah. when Gaddafi swore to kill every person in Libya who sided against them. They didn't get outraged. You know, they got a little outraged when ISIS was beheading people, but they sort of liked the idea of the slaves and the Islam. So you just did not see this explosion of, of, of outrage in the, the Muslim street, all right, that we saw in the last two weeks. But what I've noticed is that that explosion is tamped down, and I could almost predict which countries I was going to see it in. I was going to see it in Syria. I was going to see it in Lebanon. 
I was going to see see it in you know places like Turkey to a certain extent, uh, maybe some in Egypt because the Egyptians do not want this out of control, and a few dotted scattered ones in like Tunisia and Algeria. Many of these countries use what I call a relief valve protest system. Uh, at one point, I saw a protest in Abu Dhabi. And I could not believe that I was actually seeing an anti-American protest. But it was after the, you know, the uh, the film that was released in the United States that mocked Islam that led to the Benghazi massacre back in 20, uh, I can't, 2011, 2012? 2012, no, I think. 2012, yeah, sorry. I'd last been in Libya. I was in Libya in Benghazi during all of 2011. So, you know, and that protest was... It wasn't even organic. The embassy was notified that this would all be UAE army officers pretending to be protesters because they had to let that relief valve open, right? This time that didn't happen in many of the major Gulf states. It didn't happen in other parts of the Middle East that have their own problems, North Africa that have their own problems. But it happened in some of the more usual places, particularly places like Iraq, places that are aligned with Iran. Mm. So. Um, but I think that it is far less outraged than I had seen before. Um, what surprised me, though, was the outrage in Western states. You had 100,000 people march in England, mm. you know, uh, out at Westminster. You had uh, protests all over the United States. And, uh, you know, you had that crazy situation that occurred at the airport in Dagestan, yeah. right, where they yeah. thought, is, you know, Jews were coming in from Israel. And what we really saw was this transformation against anti-Israeli protests to become anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish protests. And that's where we've leaped the bridge back to the 1970s and, and, and 80s in terms of the potential for terrorism will become, you know, every Jew in the world will essentially become an avatar for Israel, and people will feel like lashing out at them. And that's, one, disgraceful, especially in my country, you know, considering how all the all of the support that we gave to our Arab brothers and sisters in the George W. Bush and Donald Trump years, where they were rabidly anti-Muslim. But now we're seeing these, you know, many of my fellow citizens, Arab Americans and their allies, lash out against Jews because of something Netanyahu did, which he had to do. A lot of people forget that 1,400 Israeli citizens were summarily executed and 240 of them are hostages. It's almost as if that doesn't matter. That's horrible, but true. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I've been, you know, I've been quite appalled by some of the reactions that I've seen or lack of reactions too. But um, you, you earlier mentioned Iran, and I wanted to have a chat with you about the Iranian connection to Hamas. And I wanted to ask about whether everything that we've sort of seen, the 7th of October attacks, might be designed to destabilize the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel that's sort of been going on in the background. Yeah, well, that's destabilized. <laughs> okay, <laughs> done. Until this, the situation with Hamas is resolved. Mm. And when I say resolved, I mean using the Israelis' terminology, eradicated. That, that, that normalization, that, that rapprochement will not mm. happen. Mm. It just won't happen. The street will not allow it to happen. Just look at what happened when a fake news report that 
500 or four, yeah, 500 people had been killed when an Israeli airstrike hit the Al Ahli hospital and destroyed the hospital full of women and children, mm. right? We found out within days that there were only 10 to 40 people killed or wounded, God bless them, but it was actually an errant rocket that malfunctioned and fell into the parking lot. It didn't destroy the hospital at all. It broke windows, you know? Mm. But the news media ran with that. The New York Times had that as a front page story. Israeli airstrike kills 500. They canceled the, a face-to-face meeting with the president of the United States, the president of Jordan, right? The senior players in the Middle East. That was the impact of that one lie. Mm. It benefited Hamas greatly. So I don't think that we're going to be seeing any uh, people sitting down and, uh, you know, you know, caressing a, a, a glowing orb anytime in the near future. <laughs> no, we probably won't. One other thought then, is there a Russian connection to what we saw on the 7th of October? Yeah, there, there's always a Russian connection <laughs> to the 7th of October. Oh, back in the good old days when the Soviet Union was funding European terrorist groups. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got into it with a, an Irish guy yesterday who was talking to me about Ir- talking to me about Palestinians being killed. And I said, yeah, I remember when you were getting weapons from the Soviet Union via Libya, Mm. right? And killing people in Northern Ireland Mm. using terrorism. So I think that as, as the circumstances continue, as this ground war starts to really kick into gear, because I I think despite what you're seeing right now, you're seeing a shaping operation go on with Hamas, but there is no way, no way that the the that the the triangle of Russia lending material and operational support to Iran, who lends material, operational, and tactical support to Hamas, is not extant. That it does not exist. It does exist. We've seen photographs. Maybe they were Hamas members, but we saw photographs of what appeared to be masked soldiers wearing PMC Wagner patches on their uniforms, training with Hamas members. That's quite possibly true. Uh, or people who worked with PMC Wagner out of Libya. They had Libyans, they had Syrians. But the operational delivery of Hamas's strategy was so precise mm. that there had to have been strategic planning that involved Iran and may have involved Russia. Russia now benefits from the destabilization of the Middle East uh, in trying to rally other countries and peoples to support their campaign in Ukraine, right? And uh, and before I go, let's make no mistake about it. Russia's getting their ass kicked in Ukraine, and they desperately need the strategic balance of countries that were that were supporting Ukraine and the United States to shift away from that. And by facilitating, maybe they didn't even know the plan. I'm certain they didn't. But by taking advantage of this. And understanding where this is going to go by helping Iran, uh, you know, uh, help stoke the fire, so to speak, yeah. against Israel. Yeah. This now benefits Russia as well. Now, when, when this is over and done with, in about three, four months, when Hamas is a remnant of what we, you know, people thought it was, and unfortunately, you may come to thousands and thousands of civilians dead. I think you're going to see a very different Israel, and you're going to see an Israel that is now going to be restocking, but that will finally 
cut all ties with Russia and come into alliance with the United States and Ukraine. And I think uh, I think Russia's going to get payback via the Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What options does Israel really have to seek justice for the 7th of October attack? And, you know, because at the moment, obviously, the response that we're seeing feels like it's feeding into Hamas propaganda and giving Hamas an opportunity to sort of play the victim. So also, why are Israel kind of conducting the operations in the way that they are? And could they be doing things differently? Well, Israel, to a certain extent, it can only play with the, the, the cards that were dealt to them. They have a force, they are a known factor. They have an air force, they are a known factor. They have a national policy, it is a known factor. Hamas played to all of those strengths. Uh, but Hamas also understands that if they don't have something that's in that, that, that we have not yet seen under Gaza City, around Gaza City, apart from the fact that they have sacrificed the civilians above ground, Israel will win this war. And when I say win the war, I mean Hamas is about to get the ISIS treatment, the full ISIS treatment, where the you know where they will cease to exist as an organizational body, that Hamas supporters in the political branch will be considered global pariahs, uh, and God knows we don't know where they're going to go, um, and to where you know. To a certain extent, I, I I think Netanyahu has it in his head that this is not a temporary occupation of Gaza, that he is now going to make Gaza a a subsidiary of you know the West Bank again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's it strikes me as quite ironic that that Netanyahu backed Hamas over the Palestinian Authority, and his only salvation may be. A Palestinian authority backed by Arab forces, you know, neutral Arab forces, Egyptian, Jordanian, maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, with mixed in with United Nations forces that take over the temporary occupation of of Gaza. But this war is going to a war of extinction. There's just no question about that. No Israeli leader can allow what happened on 10-7 not to go unpunished but to go unanswered, to be resolved. Now, the political component of this is completely different from the military component of it, right? You can kill a man, right? <laughs> it, you know, I've all week I've been confronted with, you can't kill an ideology, you can only kill a man. Yeah, I've written three books on, you know, Islamic extremist ideology and how to kill them. Um, you can kill the man. And this is one of those circumstances where they will have to get rid of this generation of Hamas fighters, man, you know, every man that took part in the operation, every man that wore the uniform of the Izzedin Kassam brigades, every man that that is going to stand up and fight against the Israelis are going to have a horrible singular outcome. Exactly what we, you know, we they did in uh, Mosul and Raqqa. Unfortunately, to kill ISIS in, in Mosul, Sinjar, Raqqa, all of these places, those cities were ruined. They were leveled. And uh, you know, I don't think it's it's I don't think it's welcome or wise for Benjamin Netanyahu to use biblical references to you know the 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 enemies in old Judea, in you know in the centuries before Christ, to say how he is going to wipe these people out. It 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 sort of removes his basis of justice. 
But this is a just military operation. I'm sorry to say it. They, you know, to let me put it in the vernacular of, uh, you know, my old Navy chief self, Israel owes them an ass kicking. And it will be a definitive and final one because you cannot allow anyone to survive in this generation. All right. Now they have to, you know, their operation against Gaza is what I call molasses slow Pac-Man, right? You got to eat these little sectors one at a time and then link up to the point where the remi- where the real Israeli army is going to show up. All right. I've seen at least, you know, one division of Israeli forces. That is not what's going to hit Gaza. There's a lot more Gaza. And Gaza City apparently is the, the major center of gravity for Hamas's forces. But don't forget, Hamas can flow from south to north along a tunnel system the Israelis haven't even approached yet. I saw a video yesterday of Hamas fighters popping up in olive, you know, olive trees, RPGing British tanks. Um, you know, so this war has yet to begin. You are still seeing, you know, despite the fact they say that, you know, they're they have launched Operation Swords of Iron. The real heavy fighting is not come yet. It's it, this is like day one of the Second Battle of Fallujah when everybody is, you know, just you know starting to shape themselves around the, the edges of the city. This is going to be a horrific battle, and a lot of people are going to die. But it is all on Hamas. It was Hamas's strategy to bring Israel into Gaza by using this massacre to have this apocalyptic battle. It only remains to be seen what next, what surprise it is Hamas thinks they have that will even the playing field. Yeah. Yeah, that's the worrying thing, isn't it? It does feel like there might be some ace up their sleeve, but I guess only time will tell. You know, an ace up your sleeve does not win a derringer in your face. (laughs) So, and unfortunately, you know, Hamas can play any game they want. And I'm speaking sincerely. Um, I've spent my entire career in Middle East land warfare, with the exception of my last two years in Ukrainian land warfare. This is a foregone conclusion. Unless, you know, the unless something happens here, you know, some, you know, apocalyptic weapon or that ISIS starts whipping out, you, you might recall these from Syria, what we call supersized, you know, improvised explosive devices. These, you know, 17, 20,000 pound IEDs that were in, usually in trucks or dump trucks and things like that. But, you know, they couldn't defeat ISIS, had many of them. And still couldn't defeat the Iraqi army and the mm-hmm. Kurdish army in wiping them off the face of the earth, you know, with U.S. air power. So, again, the next few months is going to be a, a litany of terrors, I think. Yeah, yeah, indeed. You touched upon this earlier, but what are your thoughts on some of the support for Hamas that we've been seeing in the West and people trying to justify the appalling events of the 7th of October attacks? I think very poorly of the people that have called themselves allies. As a matter of fact, I did a tweet yesterday with seven points for these newfound Palestinian allies. And the first point was quite simple. If you call yourself an ally of the Palestinian people, in the same breath, you had better say what happened on 10-7 was unacceptable, right? And an act of, of terrorism. Yeah. Because my problem is we have a lot of people, certainly in my country, and you have a much larger Muslim population in England, you know, person for person than we do in the United mm. States. Uh, but we have people here who are essentially uh, calling Hamas's terrorism resistance. Okay, I'm a counterterrorism guy. I only have one perspective on this, the counterterrorist perspective, right? I know 
you know, political violence against innocent people intended to impact an audience outside the immediate victims. And that's all this was. The whole massacre was designed to punish Israel and to draw them into an apocalyptic battle. Anyone that supports that may, in fact, find themselves investigated in my country for material support of a terrorist group, mm. right? It's this exactly, those were the rules for ISIS. Those were the rules for Al-Qaeda. Those were the rules for Al-Shabaab. Those are the rules for Boko Haram. Yep. They're the rules for, you know, um, any other terrorist, you know, Iranian Revolutionary Guard. You have a right to your free speech, but you do not have a right to the consequences from your free speech. Indeed, and I think I think there are going to be quite a few people in Britain who are going to be investigated. I've seen, obviously, the Metropolitan Police have put out tweets looking for certain individuals because a lot of the protests, there were a lot of, um, you know, to the river and the sea became a very popular phrase, and then there was dreadful pictures of the, of the paragliders and things like that. And to me, that's just not about peace. That's about people supporting terrorism. Well, let me make this quick point here, right? Because I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I'm a believer, you know, I could walk the original grounds of where the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States set ourselves apart from the evil tyranny of Britain. So I understand resistance, but I also understand people have rights. And anybody who wants to protest, you have a right to protest. But again, you don't have a right to the freedom of consequences mm. of your actions in your mouth. People are going to lose jobs. Mm. And I want them to speak out, but you have to make it clear whether you support the terrorist group or the people. Yeah. And those are two entirely different things. The biggest victim of this war is, is right now the innocent people of Gaza, the Palestinians of Gaza. Their death warrant was signed by the leadership of Hamas two years ago when they conceptualized this operation and they knew the Israelis would use precision bombing, but that that precision bombing in the middle of a major urban area with some of the densest population uh, in the world would die. And that was acceptable to them. And in fact, a commander in Hamas yesterday put out a video statement, you know, that if you go to memory TV, you can watch it where he said, the sacrifice of women and children is necessary. We, the fighters of Hamas, need their blood because their blood gives us motivation to avenge their, you know, or motivational spirit, I think he said, to avenge them. So that's like saying, I'm going to shoot my own kid to feel better about the gun battle I'm going to have with the cops. Mm. I mean, it's insane, but it is clearly part of their operational strategy and their war planning up to this that the Palestinian people are going, they're not going to become human shields. I'm writing this article about it now. They're human sponges. Their job above ground, those 10-story buildings, in not evacuating is to absorb the Israeli strikes, produce dead, and those dead will mobilize the rest of the Muslim world in our support. It's horrible. That's what many protesters had better separate themselves from. Wise words, yeah. My final question, is there a road to peace that you can see? And is there anything that can be done by the United States government to get us there? You know what? I was always a big supporter of the two-state solution. And I think this is where Israel screwed up horribly. Mm. In viewing Yasser Arafat, an old terrorist who finally came to the table to said, hey, we want to put all of this stuff aside. We want to have a nation. We want governance. 
We want to do it so both of our nations live in peace, mm -hmm. right? When an old terrorist comes up to the table, it's time to talk. When you're ready to lay down arms, it's time to talk and be serious about it. Don't think about how you're going to knife him in the back in a year or two or how to take away all of their weapons or disarm them when one suicide bomber gets through the, the slip net and then use that to wipe him off the face of the earth. That brought about Hamas. Mm. Israel affected an election so that a terrorist group was democratically elected, right? This is the one time, and I said this on, on, on international news, I was on London Broadcasting yesterday, I, I may even have mentioned it, and I said, it's time for the grand gesture. If Netanyahu wants to survive politically, and see himself in the history books as anything other than the man who created the greatest slaughter of Israelis and Jews since the Holocaust. Mm. He has one chance to say, I'm putting an end to this. We are going to have serious negotiations. I am going to return, right, or work with my government to return the entirety of the West Bank back to 1967 borders, remove all settlers, and give the Palestinians a Palestinian state. As governed by Jordan, the, you know, a, a security force led by the United States and Arab states that we can rely on, and use them as a buffer, build a giant wall, but you're just gonna have to give back all those destroyed olive trees. And you're gonna have to abandon those settlements because the Palestinians are gonna need to move into them, right? In exchange, there's going to be a grand peace. And then the global rapprochement. The only people who will not accept this is Iran, Assad in Syria, and Nasrallah and Hezbollah in Southern Lebanon. And that's where this game could get very dynamic. Mm. Because if they decide they want to jump into this war, well, Israel has options too. Uh, I was in Lebanon. Uh, you know, I served in Lebanon. I've, I coordinated with Israeli forces when I was in Lebanon. Let me tell you something. They're never getting into that Lebanese insurgency thing again. The Israelis understand that the name of the game is maneuver warfare with overwhelming firepower. They're very good at this mm -hmm. game, right? And so if they're is a circumstance where the Iranian-backed players want to use Hezbollah to attack Israel from the north. You know, Israeli, the Israelis have options too. And one of my more insane-sounding ones is, if I were Israel, I wouldn't, I wouldn't penetrate into southern Lebanon back up to Tyre or, you know, back where they held positions with the army of southern Lebanon back in the 1990s, you know, in, in early 2000s. I wouldn't do that again. Mm-mm. I crossed the Golan, go into Syria, knock down the Syrian government, come back through Baalbek, and bottle Hezbollah into southern Lebanon with forces on all three sides, and then just pummel them. Now, that would change the entire historic dynamic of the Middle East, right? You'd have to, not, of course, you don't enter Damascus. You just make it so that no more Iranian aid could get into Damascus. Maybe it's time to hand over the government to all of those people who have been fighting against al-Assad. Maybe it will take them into direct confrontation with the Russians who wouldn't survive five minutes against the Israelis. Now, that would change history now, wouldn't it? But that is a pie-in-the-sky fantasy. That's straight from my Tom Clancy <laughs> book of how geopolitics should work if things don't work. But you know what? It would knock Iran off its axis. 
It would take away all of its allies to the north. It would set Hezbollah up into having to fight an insurgency in which they had no way to gain material support. Mm. And how can I put it this way? Oh, it also removes Russia from the Middle East. That would help. Uh, but that's not going to happen. What has to happen here is the status quo has to change. And that requires whoever the leader of the government of Israel, because it may not be Netanyahu long, will have to cut the deal. Mm. They will have to work with the broader Muslim world and say, it's time to put an end to this. Let's give the Palestinians a homeland, uh, but the Jordanians are going to install all the concrete water fixtures there so that there are no steel piping coming in to make rockets to attack Israel. All right? So now, what about Gaza? I predict Gaza will not be a habitable shell. Mm. Malcolm, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, you can find out about me by following me on Twitter at Malcolm Nance on Twitter. And uh, I have Substack, which is where I'm doing most of my serious writing and video log, which is malcolmnance.substack.com. Excellent. Well, Malcolm, thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 